Okay, welcome to Spiritual Cartel's Big Book Study. This week, I'm pleased to introduce Howardy, who's kindly come to share with us on um, history and forwards. Over to you. Thank you, Howard. Uh, my name is Howard Eber, and I am an alcoholic. What do you think? Yeah? <laughs> well, Purdy's got his sky piece on, so I figured I got to have mine on it, right? Well, I'm going to put it aside. I'm not going to put it on the bed because there's a superstition. You never put a cowboy hat on the bed. So I'm going to put it over on the side. Okay. You know, I was listening to the initial reading and I, I got to take issue with something. One of the things in the reading that said, we don't have an alcohol problem. We have a drug problem. And I beg to differ. Uh, I've got a sobriety problem is, is really what it comes down to is I've got a sobriety problem. My drug and alcohol history is, is back there, it would, but it's running parallel with me. It's not too far away. All right. In any case, as I said, my name is Howard Eber. I am an alcoholic. And uh, hopefully you've got your books. If not, I'll give you a minute to do that. Grab a highlighter, a pen. Um, if you can grab a red pen, it would be helpful in one or two places, but it's not essential. Um, we are up to the forward to the second edition, which is ripe with history. When we do our workshops, I, I always point out that we're going to begin with history, which is here, and we're going to end with history, which is vision for you. It's perfect bookends for this uh, uh, incredible book. Um, so let's take a look. We're on page, if you've got the fourth edition, page XV. Um, I think I was in school that day because that tells me Roman numeral 15. Uh, but I live in the Nor I used to live in the Norgatuck Valley in Connecticut, and there it's just XV. You know, we don't know what else that means. Okay, forward to the second edition. Um, it's important to note that uh, underneath where it says forward, it has a little squiggly writing that's going to come into play as we get further into this particular forward. It says figures given in this forward describe the fellowship as it was in 1955, July of 1955. This covers a period from 1939 to 1955. And I'm sorry, I usually... I, Always start with the set-aside prayer. So give me a minute to backtrack and do that, because otherwise I'm going to get off track. Dear God, please set aside everything I think I know about myself, my disease, the big book in the 12 steps, everything I think I know about the program, the fellowship, all spiritual terms, and especially about you, God, so I may have an open mind and a new experience. Please help me see the truth. Amen. And I... Should also acknowledge, I got to thank Purdy for uh, this incredible undertaking that spiritual cartel is. This is an incredible machine and it's finally running. It's just, it's so impressive. It really is. So you do a hell of a job, Purdy. And thank you for allowing me to be part of it in the early days of this thing, too. So I could look back later and say, I, I was there in the beginning. I was there in the beginning. I remember Purdy when. <laughs> uh, okay, back to why I'm being asked to be here. Uh, forward to the second edition, it gives figures that were uh, describing the fellowship between 1939 and 1955. 
Uh, and it begins by saying, since the original, and incidentally, this was published in July of 1955. That's when the second edition came out. Uh, since the original foreword to this book was written in 1939, a wholesale miracle has taken place. And you may want to h- highlight or underline that because the wholesale miracle, it, what I like to describe it is, is the mass production of spiritual awakenings. What Henry Ford did for the assembly line, Bill Wilson does did for spiritual awakenings. He gave us this process and we are mass producing spiritual awakenings just by doing what they say to do in the book. The successful example of the book, I should say. Our earliest printing voiced the hope that every alcoholic who journeys will find the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous at his destination. Bill used to call uh, AA the court of last resort. I know for me, it was the last door on the last house on the last block. I tried everything else. I tried vitamins. I tried physical therapy. I tried religions. You name it. I tried it. I tried going to meetings. Don't drink and go to meetings. Don't pick up no matter what. I tried that for 24 years. Went through two relapses and the verge of suicide by just going to meetings and don't pick up no matter what. Okay, off the soapbox. Um, We'll find the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I like to define terms. I think it's important to understand what what we're talking about. So if you care to, let's define that word fellowship. What is it? Well, fellowship is defined as a union of friends or equals. Friends or equals sharing common interests, experiences, and purposes or purposes. Let's take a look at that. It says comments sharing common interests. What's our common interest? The solution. Common experiences. What's that? What got us admission here? Our experience, our addiction, and common purposes? Helping others. That's a perfect description of AA. It should take out the word fellowship and just put AA in there, but be that as it may. Uh, continuing, already continues the early text, twos and threes and fives of us have sprung up in other communities. Sixteen years have elapsed between our first printing of this book and the presentation in 1955 of our second edition. In that brief space, Alcoholics Anonymous had mushroomed into nearly 6,000 groups. Actually, the number was 6249, 6,249 groups, whose membership is far above 150,000 recovered. You may want to underline that, recovered. For people who say that we don't recover, we never use the word recovered. It is repeatedly used in this book. It's on the very first page. It's on the second page. Bill even defines it on the second page in the forward to the first edition where he says we've recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body. And I'll take it a step further if you care to, 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 to listen. Recovered to me means the symptoms of my disease are no longer present. I'm not drinking and drugging. Uh, I'm not a source of chaos and confusion to everybody and everything around me. Um, I, I actually, can, when I was working, I could get up in the morning and go to work. 
If I make an appointment, I keep my appointment. So all of those symptoms of my disease are gone. Cured means the disease itself is gone, and my disease will never be gone. It's always running a parallel track with me all through my life. At any moment, I can get out of my lane and jump into that lane. It's a progressive disease, so I will join it as if I've been using every one of the days that I've been in sobriety. But that's the difference between recovered and and uh, uh, cured. So don't be afraid to use recovered, but use it right. Use it right. We're not we're not cured, but I'm not hopeless anymore. I have recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body. Um, groups are to be found in each of the United States, all the provinces of Canada, AAA's flourishing communities in the British Isles, Scandinavian countries, South Africa, South America, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to jump to the next paragraph. Save some time with a lot of this stuff. Now it starts to get real. The spark that was to flare into the first AA group was struck in Akron in June 1935 during a talk between a New York stockbroker, that being Bill Wilson, and an Akron physician, that being Dr. Bob Smith. Six months earlier, the broker had been relieved of his drink obsession by a sudden spiritual experience, and I'm going to stop there for a minute. Bill had this sudden spiritual experience in December of 1934, probably December 13th in there, but but between the 11th and the 14th, that's when he was in there. And he was at Towns Hospital, T-O-W-N-S Hospital in Manhattan, in New York, the building still exists, it's 293 Central Park West. It's a co-op now. I've been there. I get chills when I stand in the lobby knowing that somewhere in this building, Bill had his spiritual experience, and the end result is this. Fitz Mayo had a spiritual experience in that same building. There's not even a sign there to indicate what that building used to be. It's a shame. But in any case, so he had this spiritual experience in December 34, and he says he had it following a meeting with an alcoholic friend who'd been in contact with the Oxford groups of the day. Stop. The friend's name's Ebby Thatcher, T-H-A-C-H-E-R. This was in November of 1934. This childhood friend who was the worst alcoholic Bill ever met. He said, if I ever got as bad as Ebby, I would have to stop. That he's the worst alcoholic that Bill Wilson ever met. And they're referring to a talk where Ebby called him and came over to his home sober and told him of his getting sober through the Oxford groups of the day. It says, following a meeting with an alcoholic friend who had been in contact with the Oxford groups of the day. So, Ebby had this um, experience. Um, you know, before um, we get really into too far of Bill's story here, it's important to note some of this background. Um, Ebby came and told him of his recovery to the Oxford groups. The Oxford group was a, uh, a first century fellow, uh, Christian fellowship that believed in conversion. Uh, 
converting one person at a time to converting a community, to converting a neighborhood, to converting the world by the practice of their spiritual activities. That included a men's inventory, um, turning it over, uh, reliance upon Christ. Um, but the Oxford groups um, also had some problems. They had a leader. They were not afraid of headlines. And the leader, if you're wondering what happened to the Oxford groups, well, they oh, I should tell you, they had a, a, an objective to achieve absolute purity, absolute honesty, absolute unselfishness, and absolute love. And they said, you can attain those things by practicing their activities. And just, again, they believed in inventory, confession of wrongs, restitution, reliance on Christ, complete deflation of ego, and helping others. And they said, if you do that, you can have this spiritual awakening. And that's what Ebby did. Ebby got involved with them, and he sobered up. He called on Bill, and he had about two months sobriety at that time. And that was impressive to Bill. And he came over to Bill's house, and he told them about his experience, about this recovery that he had. And while it didn't take at that moment, it planted a seed in Bill's head. In order for Bill Wilson to recover, two things had to happen. The first is Ebby Thatcher giving him the solution. Turning him in the direction of the Oxford groups. And Bill actually had a bit of a spiritual experience that day when Ebby told him that. He said that, you know, I'm going to, you told me this thing and I want what you have, buddy. But he didn't stay sober. Worldly clamors got to him because the problem with a spiritual experience is it's transitory. You need a firm base in spiritual recovery to survive. And that's a spiritual awakening. But Bill had this flash, this spiritual experience that went away because of the shitstorm of everyday life. And when Bill was hospitalized for the last time, he got the second part that was necessary for him to recover. So let's continue. They're about to mention that. So he talks about meeting the, this alcoholic who'd been in contact with the Oxford groups, part one. He had also been helped greatly by the late William D. Silkworth, a New York specialist in alcoholism who's now accounted no less than a medical saint by AA members and whose story of the early days of our society appears in the next page, in the, in the next pages. I'm going to continue this paragraph and then we'll talk about it. And I actually have highlighted from here to the end of the paragraph. I'm a big highlight fan. From this doctor, the broker learned the grave nature of alcoholism. He learned what was wrong with him. He learned that he had a physical allergy and a mental obsession and a spiritual malady, that he wasn't weak. He wasn't immoral. He wasn't bad. He wasn't evil. All the things he thought he was. He had an actual spirit, actual physical manifestation when he consumes alcohol. And that manifestation is craving. 
that the first one wants the second more than the first, the second cries out for the third, the third screams for the fourth, the fourth demands the fifth, and by the time you get to the tenth or eleventh, they we want that more than we've wanted anything in our lives. That's the progression of craving that Bill learned about, but he also learned he had a mental obsession that told him he didn't have a, a, a physical allergy. So knowing that you have a physical allergy is comforting. It was for me. It explained many things for which I couldn't otherwise explain in Bill's language. But that doesn't solve my problem, knowing I have this, because the reason why it manifests itself is I have a spiritual malady that underlies everything. When I am not under the influence during these periods of forced abstinence, I'm restless I'm irritable, I'm discontented, and I begin to think of the ease and the sense of ease and comfort, because it's not real, it's only a sense, that comes with that first hit. And while I can get away with, nah, I'm not going to do it, I know it happens every time I do it, eventually that nah wears off, wears away. And I imagine that somehow, some way, This time I could make it different. This time I'll stop after one or two or whatever. I'll only do it tonight and that's it. Whatever lie I tell myself that convinces me to put that chemical in my system, that obsession triggers the allergy because that's when I put it in me. But it starts with my spiritual malady in which I convince myself of something that's not true, which is this time it'll be different. So let's try and remember that this is a three-part disease, not a two-part disease. I hear that off too often. It's a two-part disease, a physical malady and a, and a mental obsession. Yeah, but it starts. It starts with a spiritual malady, which is why what I said in the beginning is what I mean. I don't have a problem with drugs. I have a problem with sobriety. But okay, I'm not going to spend too much time on step one. That's not what I've been asked to do here. Um, so let me continue. From this doctor, the broker had learned the grave nature of alcoholism. Though he did not accept all, he could not accept all the tenants of the Oxford groups, he was convinced of the need, and here are the five of the six spiritual activities that I mentioned before. One, moral inventory. Two, Confession of personality defects. Three, restitution to those harmed, amends. Four, helpfulness to others. Five, necessity of belief in and dependence upon God. Now, the Oxford groups actually had a sixth, which was complete deflation. And I believe the reason why Bill left that off here is because our whole step process is about that. That's not one simple thing that you do, like you take an inventory or you make an amends. You don't just deflate your ego. It's a whole process of continuing to keep that ego deflated because the ego is a funny thing. It comes back. It will never go away. It doesn't like to be ignored. So it'll come back. And it'll come back stronger each time. And it'll sound right because it's in our own voice. But it's a lie. 
So those are the six activities of the Oxford groups. And it said that he couldn't agree with all the tenets of it or the guidelines of it. Uh, for example, like I said, they had a leader. We don't have leaders in AA. Uh, they believed in notoriety and publicity. We don't. We stay out of the limelight. We are anonymous at that level of press, radio, and film, or above the level of press, radio, and film. Uh, and their leader, a guy by the name of Frank Bookman, spelled B-U-C-H-M-A-N, looks like Buckman, but it's pronounced Bookman, um, who created the Oxford Groups. In the late 30s, he made a trip to Europe to see some of the heads of state uh, in an effort to try and stop what was inevitably going to become World War II. So he went to all the, the leaders in Europe, and when he came back, including Hermann Goering and Joseph Goebbels, the number two and number three man under Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany, Joseph Goebbels and Hermann Goering. And when he came back to New York, he was quoted on a, by a New York paper as saying, quote, those Nazis have some good ideas. That was the end of the Oxford groups. If we had time, I'd show you the slide of that, but I don't want to take the time to do that. That's not that important. Trust me when I tell you it was a headline and it did destroy the Oxford groups because that's not something that went over well in late 30s, especially in New York. Uh, the Oxford group later became moral rearmament, became something else. They do still exist, but they don't go for the publicity that they used to do in those days. So there's a number of things that Bill didn't like about the Oxford groups, but these spiritual activities, that that got his attention because that's what got Ebby sober. The guy who was worse than anyone he ever met got sober by doing that. Okay, continuing. Um, prior to his journey to Akron, the broker had worked hard with many alcoholics on the theory that only, and I have this underlined, this rest of this paragraph sentence, only an alcoholic can help an alcoholic, but he succeeded only in keeping himself sober. When Bill Wilson finally got sober on his fourth stay at Towns Hospital, when he had that spiritual experience, because you see, when he met Dr. Silkworth, he was told about the allergy and the obsession but he went back, went out and drank again and again because he didn't really have a solution. He had an identification of the problem. So he's carrying around self-knowledge and self-will. And we know that that is an inadequate higher power. Self-will, self-control, um, uh, fear. All of these things will sober us for a while. Um, emotional appeals, all of those things will help for a while, but they are no good in the long term. In any case, um, Bill didn't know it was, knew what was wrong with him, didn't have a solution until after his third stay, he ran into Ebby. And by the time he got in for the fourth, that was enough. When he was in the hospital for that fourth time, he asked Ebby to come back and tell him those things that he told him that that Thanksgiving dinner, or after Thanksgiving, actually. Um, and Bill had a spiritual experience at Towns Hospital that night. And for the rest of his life, he hadn't had a drink. 
And there are a lot of people who say that that experience Bill had was caused by the belladonna that he was taking and the other detoxification chemicals. Uh, I couldn't give a shit what might have caused it. I go on evidence. Evidence. Bill entered the hospital and went by the time he died in 1971, between that time, those years, he never found it necessary to pick up another drink. That is significant. When Bill Wilson went into the hospital, he was selfish and self-centered to the maximum. If you read about Bill Wilson, you know that. His wife had four uh, surgeries, four hospitalizations, three ectopic pregnancies, and Bill showed up once. This was not a guy who cared much about other people. And his first thought after he had a spiritual experience is, Maybe I could take this and give this to other people because there are alcoholics all over the world. And I think I found something that will help them. And for the rest of his life, he worked on that. He didn't go back to Wall Street to make a fortune. He decided to devote the rest of his life to us. That is significant. So I don't care what might have triggered that spiritual experience that he had. He said that changed him, and I believe it, and the evidence supports it. So let's continue. Um, Oh, and and the reason why I'm departing here is that he believed that he was set out to work with others. And what happened was Bill was going to people on the Bowery in New York, Salvation Army people, who really hadn't asked him for help. And he's going up to alcoholics and telling them about his spiritual experience. And the drunks are telling them, get out of here. I don't want to. You got a nickel. You got a quarter. Give me something for a drink. They're not interested in hearing about his spiritual experience. So when it says here he succeeded in helping no one, anyone but himself, that's true. And he stayed sober and he was getting frustrated. So he told his wife that this is getting frustrating. And the story goes, it's an apocryphal story because there's really no evidence to support it. But the story goes that he spoke to Lois and Lois said, why don't you go back to Dr. Silkworth? And he may have some suggestions about why you're not effectively reaching these people. And Dr. Silkworth told him, they're not asking you for a solution. You can't beat them over the head with the solution until they ask you. So what you need to do, Bill, is tell them your story first. Get them to see themselves in you. That way they can start to think, well, gee, I'm the same as that guy. And if he's not drinking and I am, how'd you do it, buddy? Get them to the point of asking that key question. So when it says here Bill was was not helping anyone but himself, it's because he was not approaching it that right way. And then he made a trip to Akron, which we're about to hear about. And the very first person he tried this new approach on was Dr. Bob. Is it odd or is it God? This delicate chain of cosmic coincidences that led to the birth of Alcoholics Anonymous, that if one thing didn't happen right... At the time it did, the way it did, we wouldn't be here. If Bill didn't go back to Silkworth and ask that advice and Silky tell him what to do, and Bill had an errand to run a business errand in Akron, and he wound up, we're about to see, in a bad place, 
and he wound up talking to Dr. Bob. So let's continue. The broker had gone to Akron on a business venture which had collapsed, leaving him greatly in fear that he might start drinking again. He realized suddenly that in order to save himself, he must. Wait a minute. I thought there were no musts in this book. Huh. I guess they're wrong, huh? There's a lot of musts in this book. In our workshop, we identify them all. And we now have a list that counts 139 musts in this book. So don't say there are no musts. There's a shitload of musts in this book. And here's one of them. Must carry his message to another alcoholic. That alcoholic turned out to be the Akron physician. Bill had this idea for taking over uh, a company in Akron by a proxy vote and felt that the time was right for that, that he could get that to to the point where him and his investors could take over this company. National Tire Company, I forget what the name was, but it's not important at this moment. Um, And they all went out there and they looked at everything and they talked with everybody and they felt confident that they were going to get this vote in their favor. But factors unbeknownst to them, the laborers, the management and other local investors got together to keep this New York group out and they lost the proxy vote. So the investors packed up and split, leaving Bill all by himself in uh, the Mayflower Hotel in Akron, which incidentally, he didn't have enough money to even pay his hotel bill. And the story goes, he's standing in the lobby and he hears the chinkling chinkling of the glass and the the ice and the laughter uh, from the bar. And on the other side of the lobby was a church directory and a phone booth. And what happened was Bill actually did go into the bar but he went in to get a handful of nickels so he could make the phone call because that's what it cost at the time. And he made a phone call. He just picked that arbitrarily picked the name off of this uh, list of uh, religious leaders. He picked the name Walter Tunks, T-U-N-K-S. Another coincidence, unbeknownst to Bill, Walter Tunks was the leading advocate of the Oxford groups in Akron, Ohio. Is it odd or is it God? How'd that happen? So Bill called Tunks. Tunks gave him the name of 10 people. Bill said, I'm an alcoholic from New York. I'm going to drink if I don't get to talk to another alcoholic. Can you help me? And for some reason, Walter Tunks didn't hang up on him. (laughs) It's a perfectly natural response. You get a call from a stranger asking you, if you got a number of a drunk, get out of here hang up on him. Well, he didn't. He gave him 10 names. Story goes, Bill called nine of them without success. The 10th person on the list was the first one he reached, a guy by the name of Walter Shepard. You know what a shepherd does? Keeps the flock moving in a particular direction. Keeps the flock together. That's what Walter Shepard did because he gave Bill the name of somebody, Henrietta Sieberling, who he knew 
had a friend who was struggling with alcohol. And Bill called Henrietta and said that I'm a rum hound from New York and I got to talk to another drunk. And she said, you come over here right away. She thought it was manna from heaven because she's been praying, praying for something to happen to help her friend, Dr. Smith, who had confessed at their Oxford groups that he cannot control his alcohol consumption, that he was, quote, a hopeless drunk. He confessed that to the group. And they prayed for him, and she prayed for him. And when that phone rang, she thought, okay, this is the answer to my prayer. You come over here right now. And he came over, and by the time he got there, she had already spoken to Annie Smith, Dr. Smith's wife. And apparently, she's told Henrietta, look, uh, today's Mother's Day. And Dr. Bob came home with a potted plant for me. And now that potted plant is sitting here on the table, and he's potted under the table. So I don't think this is a good time for you to come over and talk to him. But they set up an appointment for the next day. And even though when Dr. Smith sobered up and he heard about this, he was at, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. He finally gave in to 15 minutes. He said, I'll spend 15 minutes with this guy. But you better knock on that door in 15 minutes and get me out of there. And that 15 minutes turned into six hours. And when Dr. Bob left that room with Bill Wilson, he was a changed man. And he said, this is the first man I ever met who knew what he was talking about alcoholism. And what did Bill do? He walked in and he said, you look like you could use a drink, pal. I know what that's like. Let me tell you. And he told them his story. And Dr. Bob saw himself in that story. And Dr. Bob wanted to know how Bill got sober. And Bill told him, he didn't tell him I went to 90 meetings in 90 days, incidentally. He told him he accessed a power greater than himself that was able to accomplish what he was never able to on his own. And by accessing that power, everything else became possible. When we're at meetings and you get your anniversary coin and people ask, well, how'd you do it, buddy? The answer is, I accessed the power greater than myself that was able to do for me what I couldn't do. Everything else is a result of that. I went to 90 meetings, 90 days. I got a sponsor. I did this. I did that. Uh, First of all, the eyes got to go. I didn't do anything. But it starts with accessing that power. And that's what he told Dr. Bob. And Dr. Bob, well, let's continue the reading. The physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but had failed. He'd been going to Oxford group meetings. Bill did not know that. He was practicing their activities. He was getting some success in terms of changing his attitude towards everything except alcohol. And he thought, that's great. Let me have a drink to celebrate. And that triggers the allergy and he's off and running again. And Dr. Bob went through that endless cycle of unbearable drunkenness, followed by unbearable sobriety, followed by unbearable drunkenness, by unbearable sobriety, and so on and so forth. So he tried spiritual means without any success. And you know why it didn't work? He didn't know what was wrong with him. 
He had the solution in his hand, but he didn't know what was wrong with him. Bill Wilson shows up and Bill has the solution that he got from doc, from Dr. Silkworth in his mind. And then the other side, he has the problem identified by Dr. Silkworth. Did I just mess that up? He had the solution supplied by Ebby, rather, and the uh, problem defined by Dr. Silkworth. And he gave that to Dr. Bob. And Bob was able to stay sober for the first time because he knew what was wrong with him, that it's not the fifth or the sixth or the eighth drink. It's the first. One is too many and a thousand never enough. And that's what Dr. Bob learned. So it says that uh, continuing, um, but when the broker gave him Dr. Silkworth's description of the problem, allergy, obsession, spiritual malady, The physician began to pursue the spiritual remedy, the solution, for his malady with a willingness he had never before been able to muster. He sobered never to drink again up to the moment of his death in 1950. The phrase never to drink again means he achieved permanent sobriety. He achieved permanent recovery. This is another myth that has to be blown up. People say you don't ever say you achieve permanent sobriety, permanent recovery. The book says it, and book says it repeatedly. We're about to run into it two more times in the next page. It is possible. But you have to complete the other part of the equation that you achieve permanent sobriety as a result of living one day at a time by the spiritual principles of 10, 11, and 12. That's how we do it. We do recover one day at a time, but we can achieve permanent sobriety if that one day at a time means we live by those spiritual disciplines of 10, 11, and 12. So continuing, uh, Purdy, how much time do I have? Ten minutes? Okay. All right. Well, I'm just going to keep going. You just, you stop me when, when we hit that point. All right. Um, so he never drank, uh, until the moment of his death in 1959, in 1950, 50, yeah. Um, This seemed to prove that one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic can. I've got that sentence highlighted as a promise. It is what in NA is called the therapeutic value of one alcoholic or one addict helping another is without parallel. It is the therapeutic value of one of us helping another one of us is without parallel. Doctors can have 20 degrees on their wall. I can help better than he can when it comes to an alcoholic or an addict because I have the experience and I have the solution. There's 92 people in this room today who are more qualified than any doctor for when it comes to helping alcoholics and addicts. We are without parallel. 
He just said it. We can help when no one else can. And P.S., that blows up the myth of powerlessness. All through this book, we are being told that we've been given a power that nobody else has. We're not powerless. Continuing, he said, it also indicated that strenuous work, please highlight and underline that word strenuous. Strenuous work. That doesn't mean 90 meetings in 90 days. It doesn't mean going to three meetings a day. Strenuous work, and it's explained in the next phrase, one alcoholic with another. Please underline that. One-on-one, face-to-face, nose-to-nose, eye-to-eye. And thank God for Zoom, because we can do that in a moment's notice. I don't have to set up a time to meet someone at the diner and to go, no, just log on. I have about a dozen sponsees that live in Great Britain, Ireland, Australia. I've never met them personally, but because of Zoom, they've had their spiritual awakenings and I got to see it. I got to see it. So the therapeutic value, again, strenuous work, one alcoholic with another was vital. Underline vital, please. Vital means life-supporting. Your lungs are not vital organs. You could live without one of them. Kidney is not a vital organ. You got two of them. Uh, Your heart is considered a vital organ, The only one you can't live without it. It is vital. I have managed to live most of my life without using my brain, but technically it is a vital organ. I just didn't use it very much. Uh, Let me repeat this whole phrase so the last few words will have more impact. It was also indicated that strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, was vital to... What's that? Permanent sobriety. Hmm. Permanent recovery. I thought we don't say those kind of things. Twice. Twice. In two paragraphs. In the same paragraph, actually, Bill does it. He's going to mention it again in the next paragraph. It is not impossible to achieve permanent recovery. It is done a day at a time. Okay. Um, in fact, uh, I, I love connecting the dots in this book, uh, and jumping from one place to the other. And I said that it's in several places that Bill mentions permanent sobriety. And if I had the time and I don't want to take that, I could jump to you with you to say page 13 and then again to page 116 and then again to page 90 and so on and show you where those examples are. Um, come to the workshop uh, on Sunday nights and we take the time and do it there. I just don't have the time to do it now. Um, was vital to permanent recovery. Hence, the two men set out to work almost frantically upon alcoholics arriving in the ward of the Akron City Hospital. Excuse me. Their very first case, a desperate one, recovered immediately and became AA number three, that person being Bill Dotson. 
D-O-T-S-O-N. Bill and Bob sobered up. Uh, Dr. Bob sobered up, rather, and he called the Akron Hospital and spoke to the head nurse there. And he said, I got a guy here from New York who's found a recovery for alcohol. You got any drunks there? And the nurse said, yeah, we, we got a doozy here, a real corker, uh, she called them. Uh, he's already punched out two nurses. We got him strapped down in bed. Uh, he's been in and out of here plenty of times. Uh, Dr. Bob said, put him into a separate room. We're on our way down. And they wheeled this guy, Bill Dotson, into a, actually a closet. It was a storage room and cleared out all of this stuff. And that's where Dr. Bob and, and Bill paid a visit on him and sobered him up. And his story is in the book right after Dr. Bob's AA number three. This book story was in the first edition. It's still in the fourth edition, right after Dr. Bob's nightmare. It's required reading as far as I'm concerned in the stories. You've got to read Dr. Bob's Nightmare. You've got to read AA number three, and you've got to read our, read our Southern Friend. But that's not what I'm here for. Um, so um, became a, a, a recovered immediately and became AA number three. Oh, here it is again. He never had another drink. Ah. Permanent sobriety, three times in two paragraphs. This work at Akron continued through the summer of 1935. There were many failures, but there was an occasional heartening success. When the broker returned to New York three months later, you may want to write that in, he stayed in Akron for three months working with Dr. Bob, to help drunks. When the broker returned to New York in the fall of 1935, the first AA group had actually been formed, though no one realized it at the time. The first AA group that they're referring to is in Akron, a group of alcoholics within the Oxford group were meeting privately in Dr. Bob's home, and they were called the Drunk Squad of AA. Uh, I'm sorry, the Drunk Squad of Oxford Group. That's not an official title. It's just the way that they were referred to. And I have written in the margin next to this because I like to keep a count. And when I suggested you have a red pen, here's why. When the broker returned to New York three months later in the fall of 1935, the first AA group had actually been formed. So in the margin next to that, I've written the number four. We have four members of Alcoholics Anonymous. When Bill returned to New York in the fall of 1935, there were four alcoholic recoveries. Bill Wilson, Dr. Bob, Bill Dotson, and a gentleman by the name of Ernie Galbraith, G-A-L-B-R-A-I-T-H. Ernie's story was in the first edition, was dropped because he uh, uh, drank again. Ernie was, uh, he married Dr. Bob's daughter against Dr. Bob's wishes. Dr. Bob called Ernie a, quote, uniquely, unlikable fellow. 
That is about as polite a way of saying he's an asshole as I ever heard in my life. A uniquely unlikable fellow. The, the marriage didn't last long, maybe two months or something like that. The story is that he was probably drinking at his own wedding. But when Bill returned to New York, he was sober. So they had four members of Alcoholics Anonymous in the fall of 1935. And as we go through the rest of this uh, forward to the second edition, we're going to keep adding into that column. So far, we started with four. Uh, do I have time for the next paragraph? Go for it. Okay. Um, a second small group promptly took shape at New York to be followed in 1937 with the start of a third in Cleveland. That third group in Cleveland was started by a guy by the name of Clarence Snyder. His story was called The Home Brewmaster. He found himself on the wrong side of several arguments with Bill Wilson, so his story was deleted from the fourth edition. Uh, for my money, Clarence Snyder is one of our founders. Absolutely one of our founders. A lot of the things that we take for granted today, like the concept of sponsorship, Clarence's idea, the notion of rotation within groups, Clarence's idea, the notion of communication with groups through a district lead, the district that uh, coordinated things between them, all Clarence's idea. I can go on and on. If you're interested, there's a book called How It Worked, W-O-R-K-E-D. How It Worked by Mitchell Klein, one of us, our friend, part of the workshop. He comes from time to time. He's still around. This book is phenomenal. It tells Clarence's story, and it tells the things that he introduced to AA. But like I said, he wound up on the wrong side of some arguments with Bill. For one thing, he never accepted the traditions. Never accepted them. He spoke, and when he spoke, he, called, he had newspapers there, and they used his name. But that's what they're talking about. Clarence Snyder got sober with Dr. Bob, went back to Cleveland, started the third group. So we have three hubs now. We've got Akron, we've got New York, and now we have Cleveland. Uh, let me get through this paragraph. Besides there, Besides these, there were scattered alcoholics who had picked up the basic ideas in Akron or New York who were trying to form groups in other cities. By late 1937, the number of members having substantial sobriety time behind them was sufficient to convince the membership that a new light had entered the dark world of the alcoholic. And this is a perfect place to stop because what happened in 9th, October of 1937 is a very significant event. It was called the Counting Noses Meeting, where Bill returned to Akron and the decision was made to write a book that would fund uh, a chain of national hospitals to treat alcoholics, that would fund training a chain of, of missionaries around the country to get people into the hospital. This was all decided in that on that meeting when Bill went back in, uh, <clears throat> what was it, um, October 1937. But that's where I'm going to stop. That's a good place to start next time is what happened at that meeting. Because it's set, there's a story about how Bill stacked the deck to get some things in his favor approved. But we'll talk about that next time. Thank you all for having me.
Purdy, again, God bless you. Thank you so much for giving me this forum. Thank you, Howard. That-